0: Hello and welcome. My name is Wallace Marshall from the Biochemistry Department at UCSF. And today, my colleague Jackie Duncan and I are going to be telling you about a class of diseases of retinal degeneration which are caused by defects in cilia, a cellular component found in most cells of the body. This image shows you a picture of a a number of cells grown on a coverslip. Each cell is outlined in red. And then within each cell, you can see these green objects. These are the cilia. These are hair like projections from the cell. And as you see, for these cells, every single cell has exactly one. Now, these look very simple. They look like small little hairs. What we're going to try to tell you about today is that, in fact, these small, simple objects are involved in an incredibly wide range of human diseases. And in particular, we're going to focus on diseases that affect the retina. So here we have an image of cilia shown in the collecting duct of the kidney. And what you see is that they project into the lumen of the kidney where the the fluid would be flowing, the urine would be flowing. And although these cilia look like very simple hair like structures from the outside, what we'll see is that when we look on the inside, they're much more complicated. So, this is a picture of the internal structure of a cilium. As you can see, it looks very complex. The cilium consists of an extension of the plasma membrane, the cell membrane, shown here in, in yellow. And this is a specialized membrane called the ciliary membrane that's full of sensory receptors that can detect various chemicals in the media. This membrane protrusion, as you see here, is pushed out from the cell surface by the superstructure of proteins, as you see in the middle here. And there's a complex set of hundreds of proteins that form this complicated superstructure, of which I've only diagrammed a few in this picture. So, we see there are nine microtubule doublets, shown in blue, and these are the basic structural components of the cilium. These are connected together by various linkages. In particular, they're connected by these dynein arms, the outer dynein arm and the inner dynein arm, which provide the motile force for moving the cilium in cases where the cilium has to move. And there's a variety of other structures as well. There are two other microtubules in the middle called the central pair microtubules. Those are found in some cilia but not others. And various other structures. It's highly complex, hundreds of proteins, and as far as we know... Um, There's probably a lot of variation in which proteins are present in cilia of different cell types. And the entire structure is built on a platform called the basal body, which is a highly modified version of the centriole of the cell. So, this structure is very complicated, and that raises a couple of questions. One question is, how does a cell build something that's this complicated? You've got so many pieces, how do you fit them all together in an orderly way? The other question is, why do cilia have to be so complicated? If all you're building is a simple hair-like structure, why do you need hundreds of proteins? First we're going to address this first question of how does a cell build this complicated structure. And we now know that the building of a cilium involves a motile process called intrafogellar transport, shown in this diagram. Intrafogellar transport is an active motility operated by a kinesin-2 motor protein, shown here in purple, which moves along these microtubules and it carries cargo out to the tip. The way it carries the cargo is by interacting with a complex of 25 polypeptides called an IFT particle, shown here by these yellow spheres. The IFT particles themselves are not actually part of the cilium; They're just like the bed of a truck that grabs cargo and carries it. Then these IFT particles aggregate into a long linear array known as an IFT train, and then those IFT trains move all the way from the cell body out to the tip of the cilium, drop off cargo like tubulin and other proteins, where they can then assemble onto the growing structure, and then the IFT trains come back to the cell body and get more cargo. So, this process, intra transport, is really the key machinery for building cilia. So, at least part of the reason why the cell is able to make such a complicated structure is this involvement of an active motility that can put, select the cargo that you want and then put that cargo in the right place at the right time. The second question is, why do cilia have to be so complicated? One reason is because cilia have a lot of jobs to do. Different cells have different cilia. Almost every cell of the human body has cilia on it, but these cilia do different functions. So, some cilia, as we show on top, are non-motile. These cilia are probably playing sensory roles. And there are non-motile cilia, for example, in the collecting duct of the kidney, in various um, elements of the eye, and really many tissues in the body. There are also cilia that that are motile. So, examples are shown here. The canonical example is motile cilia in the epithelium of your airway that are involved in moving mucus but there's also cilia that are motile in in the embryo and in the brain and other... and oviduct and other places. So, cilia have to do many different roles, sensory and motile, and probably that's why they need to be such complicated structures. So, then the question is, what does the function of cilia contribute to human physiology and health? So... The the first really evidence that cilia defects would cause disease came from diseases in which motility of cilia was defective. So, diseases in which cilia don't move properly. And this is known as primary ciliary dyskinesia, or PCD. And PCD um, has um, several different symptoms that patients can get. One is bronchiectasis, shown on the left. This is caused by a defect in clearing mucus out of the airway, so that the mucus starts to pile up. And this makes sense, because you have cilia that are normally driving the flow of mucus. If the cilia can't move properly, the mucus will simply accumulate. And since one of the jobs of mucus is to get bacteria out of your lungs, if you can't clear the mucus out, now the mucus sits around with bacteria in it, and you get inflammation and infection, and it's quite debilitating. There are also cilia-moving mucus in your sinuses, and so similar to bronchiectasis, if you have ciliary motility defects, you typically will suffer from chronic sinusitis. In addition, about half the patients who have um, ciliary motility defects have what's known as situs inversus, shown here. Situs inversus means that all the organs inside your body are on the opposite side from they normally would be. So, instead of your heart being on the left, now it's on the right, your spleen's on the other side, and so on. This actually is fine. It doesn't make you sick. You could have it right now and not know it. But it is a common feature in roughly half of the patients with non-motile cilia. And it's now known that this is because there are motile cilia in the embryo that drive a flow of fluid. And the direction of that fluid flow determines which side of your body is left and which side is right. In addition, male patients are sterile because their sperm can't move, which it's, kind of makes sense because the flagella that drive your sperm motion are similar structures to the cilia that drive mu- um, flow of mucus. So, there's this class of diseases um, called primary ciliary dyskinesia. And if the patients have situs inversus, this is known as Kartagener syndrome. This is important because it was the first recognized ciliopathy the first disease caused by a defect in cilia. This was discovered by Bjorn afzelius who studied Cartagena's patients and discovered that they had defects in ciliary motility because the structure of the cilia was defective. So, this is a cartoon showing a cross-section through the cilium, and on top we see the complicated structures that are in there, including the dynein arms that go from one doublet to the other. And as the dynein arm walks along a doublet, it causes the entire cilium to bend, and that's how mucus gets, gets unpropelled. On the bottom, we see, on the left, an electron micrograph of a similar cross-section through a normal human patient. And what you can see, if you look carefully, is that each outer doublet microtubule has these two projecting hooks. And those are the outer and the inner dynein arms that drive motility. On the right, we see a a micrograph of a patient with PCD. And you see the patient is missing a set of the dynein arms. And that's why the cilia don't move. So, when Afzelius discovered that Kartagener syndrome was caused by defective ciliary structures involved in motion, that was really the first clue that cilia could play an important role in human disease. Now, PCD and Kartagener syndrome involved motile cilia. These are typically found in large numbers on cells of the airway. There was a whole other set of cilia, though, called primary cilia, which are found in almost every other cell of the human body. Typically, there's one primary cilium per cell. They're not motile. They don't, they don't move. They're now thought to be sensory structures, and we know that they're jam-packed with, re- with receptors and signaling molecules. But in the old days, no one knew what they did. And there was... The, th- the thought was out there that they were just vestigial, irrelevant structures. And this was a quite widespread belief. Now, you may ask yourself, how could anyone think that an organelle found in every cell of the body is somehow vestigial and unimportant? And that is quite a mystery, but that's what people generally tended to believe. So, an interesting clue about cilia function came from a disease called polycystic kidney disease. This is an incredibly common disease, it affects 1 in 1,000 people in the U.S., and it's one of the leading causes of kidney failure. Polycystic kidney disease is a disease in which the kidney becomes swollen with gigantic fluid-filled cysts, the kidney itself becomes extremely large, as shown here in the image, and eventually it leads to kidney failure. Before 1998, the cause of polycystic kidney disease was not known. However, there was a mouse mutant that was called TG737. This was a random mutation of a particular gene called transgene 737. Nobody knew what the gene did. They could show, however, that mutations in this gene caused the kidney to be filled with gigantic fluid-filled cysts, and therefore it became a model for polycystic kidney disease. But at the time it was found, and for many years afterwards, nobody knew why this mutation caused the formation of cysts in the kidney. The clue came from an even more unlikely, potentially, source, which is green algae. So, it turns out a green alga called Chlamydomonas reinhardii, shown here, has really been critical for learning a lot of what we know about cilia. The reasons are twofold. One, Chlamydomonas has very easy genetics, so if you want to do genetic studies, you can do thousands more studies in a given amount of time in Chlamydomonas than you could with a mouse, which is very slow and difficult to work with. Also, biochemistry is very good, so you can isolate um, the cilia from this organism very cleanly and easily. One point of terminology. In Chlamydomonas these cilia are referred to as flagella, and what you'll see if you study this field is that different organisms and different cell types may call the structure cilia, or they may call it flagella. The two terms mean exactly the same thing. They're just two different words for the same structure, just like morning star and evening star. So, workers studying um, the, the flagella of Chlamydomonas, which is the psyllium of this green alga, made a really key discovery, which is the discovery of this intraflagellar transport process that I told you about. This was discovered in Joel Rosenbaum's lab by Keith Kosminski. And they were looking at motility within this flagellum using video microscopy. And what they could see when they looked at images like the one on the left, at very high resolution, is they could see particles moving back and forth. Then, harnessing the genetics of this organism, they were able to find a mutation, a mutation in the kinesin, which was previously known, but then they learned that this mutation caused IFT motility to stop and the particles to apparently not be within the flagellum anymore. That was then the key tool that Douglas Cole and the Rosenbaum Lab used to try to purify these IFT particle proteins. What he did was to isolate the cilia from the cells biochemically, which is very easy to do in this organism, unlike mammalian cells, where I can attest it's very difficult, and then compared what proteins he saw in the cilia from mutants that, had, that lacked IFT to normal cells that had IFT. And he found a set of proteins that were missing in the mutant that didn't have IFT, and so he called those the IFT proteins. And so when I showed you images like this one before, I told you there's a complex of 25 or so polypeptides that make up this IFT particle. Those are the IFT proteins that Doug Cole first started discovering. And it was this discovery that really launched the modern field of ciliopathy because when when they started sequencing the different proteins and determining their identity, they discovered that one of these proteins, IFT88, was in fact TG737, the gene which, when mutated, caused polycystic kidney disease in this well-known mouse model. Somehow, when this... Uh, when the IFT is missing, the cell can no longer build cilia, so the cells lose cilia, and then somehow that leads to polycystic kidney disease. The big question is, Why does the the kidney care whether the cells have cilia or not? What do cilia have to do with the kidney? It turns out that the reason why the kidney cares about cilia is because cilia act as sensors of urine flow. So, the cilia project into the collecting tubules of the kidney, and as the fluid flows by, it bends the cilia. And as shown in this diagram, the cilia contain channels that open in response to this flow and lead to a calcium transient inside the cell the cells then interpret this calcium level and adjust their own behavior. Now, we know that if cells don't have the cilia, they can't respond to the flow and generate these calcium signals. So, how does that lead to cysts? Well, the current idea is that if cells don't have the flow, they try to obtain the flow by proliferating. And when the cells proliferate, they're trying to basically grow a new tube to try to get out to where the rest of the flow is. And this attempt to make a tube when they aren't supposed to be doing that leads to the formation of cysts. So the basic idea is that when you have a defect in cilia, either because the cilia are missing, or because the cilia don't contain some of these receptor channels for for flow, then the cells think they need to keep proliferating, and so they overproliferate, and that makes these gigantic cysts that cause polycystic kidney disease. But it turns out cystic kidneys are not the only defect we see in mutations that affect primary cilia. Another example is the IFT80 protein, another one of these IFT proteins. Mutations in IFT80 cause cystic kidneys, but also other defects, and collectively this this disease is called short rib polydactyly. So, this is a syndrome that's characterized by not only kidney cysts, but also extra fingers and toes, shown here in this picture. So, we already understand why an IFT defect could give rise to kidney disease, because you're losing this ability of the... uh, losing these flow sensors, the cilia in the kidney. But what does cilia have to do with extra fingers and toes? Well, it turns out that cilia not only are sensing mechanical stimuli, like fluid flow, they're also involved in sensing and transducing chemical signals. In this case, there's a chemical ligand called hedgehog which signals position along the vertebrate limb. So, it it helps cells know whether they should make a certain kind of finger or a certain kind of toe where they are in the growing limb bud. The hedgehog protein itself binds to a receptor on the cell surface, which then triggers biochemical events inside the cilium, which lead to changes in processing of transcriptional regulators, which, as shown in this diagram, ultimately affect transcription of genes inside the cell, which help determine cell fate. And a number of studies shown here have found that various components of this hedgehog signaling pathway are either localized within the cilium or are influenced by events that occur within the cilium. So, the idea is that when you have ciliary defects, for example, in IFT mutants, not only will you have kidney problems, you'll also have problems developing tissues that require hedgehog signaling, such as limb buds, and that's how you get polydactyly. So, what you can see is that cilia cause a wide range of symptoms, and there's many more symptoms than what I've told you about so far. And we think that these various symptoms have to do with differences in the composition of the cilia in different cell types. And so many of us are interested in learning more about the complexity of cilia. What are all the proteins that are in there? What are all the genes that encode these proteins, and what do they do, and how do they relate to human disease? There have been many efforts to look at the proteome, that is, the full protein composition of the cilia themselves. We ourselves have been looking at one particular part of the cilium, which is the basal body I told you about, the platform on which you build the cilium. Now, within a cell, there's a structure called the centriole, which is shown here on, on the left. The centriole is a barrel of nine microtubule triplets, which in interphase is involved in building the centrosome. So, this structure that's going to nucleate the skeleton of the cell and also is involved in cell division. But in addition to its role in forming the centrosome, the centriole can also move to the surface of a cell, as shown here, and in this case, it docks on the surface of the cell and then nucleates the formation of a cilium, and at that point it's called the basal body. And you can see in this electron micrograph, there's a basal body here at the base, and then the cilium grows out from that. So our thinking is that if one of the roles of the basal body is to build a cilium, maybe there will be interesting proteins in the basal body, not in the rest of the cilium, that play some role in the complex functions of the cilium. So, we wanted to know, what is the protein composition of the basal body? Several labs had looked at the protein composition of isolated cilia and found a number of interesting ciliary disease gene-encoded proteins. Proteins involved in polycystic kidney disease, proteins involved in Cardigator syndrome, hydrocephalus, and many other interesting cilia-related diseases. Interesting and debilitating for those who have them. What about the basal body? It's needed to make cilia. It's at least as complicated in its structure as the cilia themselves, will it have a different set of proteins? So, to answer this question, we went back to Chlamydomonas reinhardii, this green alga that was used to discover IFT. We can grow it in huge um, quantities. So, so as shown here, we we grow it typically in 8-liter jugs under a fluorescent light. And then we were able to isolate the basal bodies from these cells, as shown here in in the right panel. Once we had the basal bodies isolated, our friend John Yates did the proteomic analysis for us on the sample. When we looked at the proteins that made up the basal body. We got an interesting result. It turns out that a a substantial number of the proteins we found in the basal body corresponded to genes that were already known to cause um, cilia-related defects, or defects that you could, in principle, relate to cilia. And here I'm just showing an example of some of them. So, for example, CEP290 causes a, a kidney disease called nephronophthysis and also retinal degeneration. NPHP4... Gives you ne- If you have mutations in that, you have nephronophysis and retinal degeneration. And what we see is that a number of these diseases involving basal body proteins seem to have a, a, a syndrome called retinal renal ciliopathy. That is, you see this combination of defects in cilia and in the retina. And it raises the question, how does this one set of proteins found on the basal body cause these two kinds of symptoms again and again? It turns out, if you look at where the proteins that cause retinal renal ciliopathy localize, they localize to the very end of the basal body, a region that we call the transition zone, which is the junction between where the basal body is and where it forms the cilium. And if you look in cross-section, there's these very interesting star-shaped structures that form in this transition zone. And I think it's fair to say we still don't know all the proteins that are in this region. So, it is proteins that localize to this transition zone that appear to cause these problems both in the kidney and in the retina. And the question is, why? Why why do you have so many defects? Part of the reason could be because basal bodies actually do at least two things. One is that the basal bodies move to the cell surface and and dock onto the cell surface. And that's where they form the cilium. So, they're forming a mechanical anchor. So, you can imagine that defects in that mechanical anchoring could have various... um, could have various phenotypic consequences and cause potentially disease symptoms. In addition, this transition zone is apparently acting as a barrier to to keep just random proteins from the cell getting into the cilium. So, if this this zone is acting as as some kind of selectivity filter, then you could imagine that defects in proteins of the transition zone would cause defects in which proteins get into the cilium and which ones don't. In thinking about some of these functions, it's very important also to distinguish between nephronophysis, which is what's caused by mutations in these transition zone proteins, from normal polycystic kidney disease, which is what um, we previously talked about with the TG737 mutant. So, polycystic kidney disease, shown on the left, is an adult-onset disease in which kidneys become extremely large, and the cysts that that form are round or spherical. Nephronophysis, although it affects kidneys, is really quite different. It's very early onset, and it's juvenile onset in children. The cysts are not round, they're tubular. And the overall size of the kidney is not any different. The kidney is still normal size. So, although both of these are cystic kidney syndromes, they really are quite different in their phenotype. And I think it's fair to say that we still don't really understand exactly how these two different kinds of symptoms arise. There's a hypothesis... there's a hypothesis currently being discussed about where nephronophthisis comes from that's quite different from what I previously told you about for polycystic kidney disease. And the idea here is that normally, as shown on the left, when a kidney is, is developing, cells will orient their divisions to make a tube of the correct length and diameter, and this becomes the collecting ducts of the kidney. If you had randomization of the spindle orientation, so that the cells were dividing in random directions instead of along the length of the tube, then what would happen is you would get these very wide tubes similar to what you see in nephronophthisis. And in fact, in various animal models of this disease, when researchers have gone and looked at spindle angles, they can find that in fact there is a randomization of spindle angles in these nephronophthisis animal models. This would fit with the idea that maybe it's the anchoring function of, of the basal body that's involved in anchoring the structure to the surface of the cell, and therefore helping the spindles orient in the correct direction. And when you have this defective anchoring and orientation, you would then have randomization of which way the cells were dividing, and that would give you nephromethysis. This is still a controversial hypothesis. Not everyone agrees with this, and it may be wrong. But it's interesting to think about there could be functions of the basal body that really aren't related to ciliogenesis per se, and it's important to always bear that in mind. But none of this answers the question of why are there also retinal symptoms? And to answer that question, I will now yield the floor to my esteemed colleague from the ophthalmology department, Dr. Jackie Duncan. Thank you very much for your attention.